Go not to Lethe, neither twist wolf's bane tight-rooted for its poisonous wine, nor suffer thy pale forehead to be kissed by nightshade, ruby grape of proserpine. Make not your rosary of yewberries, nor let the beetle, nor the death moth be your mournful psyche, nor the downy owl a partner in your sorrow's mysteries. For shade to shade will come too drowsily and drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. But when the melancholy fit shall fall sudden from heaven like a weeping cloud, that fosters the droop-headed flowers all, and hides the green hill in an April shroud. Then glut thy sorrow on a morning rose, or on the rainbow of the salt sand wave, or on the wealth of globed peonies, or if that mistress some rich anger shows, imprison her soft hand and let her rave, and feed deep, deep upon her peerless eyes. She dwells with beauty, beauty that must die, and joy, whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu, an aching pleasure nigh, turning to poison while the bee mouth sips. I, in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy has her sovereign shrine. Though seen of none gave him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine, his soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. John Keats, Ode on Melancholy Emily Yoshida, 21st February 2018, Vulture Quote, the tower which was not supposed to be there is not even a full opening sentence, and yet the first nine words of Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation told the reader at least nine things within a second. They're obviously things you can get away with more easily in a book than in a film, but that anonymous airdrop into the mysterious Area X, whose uncanny nature becomes the focal point for a trilogy of novels, is something Hollywood could learn from. It also sets up a trilogy in which perception and the inevitable breakdown of something like a shared reality as emblematized by that very tower, or staircase if you like, plays a central role. The tower is in fact not there in Alex Garland's adaptation of Vandermeer's novel, both literally and in a more spiritual sense. At first this feels like a lost opportunity. How cinematically fun would it be to play with the book's warped perspective, its narcotic disorientation? But Garland has used Area X as a jumping off point for something like a companion to Vandermeer's work, or a deeply personal feeling interpretation. Whereas the book comes off as more of a portrait of an ecology in psychedelic decline, Garland's film was about a personality undergoing the same kind of breakdown. Maybe that distinction feels traditional in the sense that Hollywood movies are financed because of movie stars, not radical biomes. But by its end, annihilation is anything but mainstream. What makes a good drug movie? Can it be about nothing? Or does it need to be about so much that you need to be on a controlled substance in order to think you're accessing all its layers of meaning? Does it just need to make you feel like you're on drugs? In another era, Annihilation would feel destined to be a dorm room classic, to reside in a realm of trippy shit alongside Jodorowsky and Gilliam. Now movies are pliable enough that it may live on as a handful of gifts and clips of its malevolently lush visuals as a get-high-and-check-this-out spectacle. That aspect of the film is clearly in a fight with all the why-did-you-come-here, Sid Field, motivational padding between its troubling set-pieces. And it's a very studio suit move to assume that the only way to give meaning to a film is to have people talk about it. It's also a studio suit move to cast Portman and Lee in roles that were written, however non-centrally to the plot, as Asian and Native women respectively. Gotta interrupt the quotation really quick to point out once again, in the first novel, there is no racial identifier for either character. 
Yoshida has clearly read the whole trilogy. And I would argue, Vandermeer was specifically not putting identifiers on them in the first novel at least. Anyway, back to the quotation. Garland is telling the story through visuals and through a cell biology thread most producers would not have faith in an audience to follow. But to mistake Garland's succession of haunted house-like spectacles as Acid the Place would be missing out on so much emotional work that he's doing. Although the squeamish should be warned those spectacles range from mildly disturbing to gory and disgusting to absolutely terrifying. The annihilation of the film's title is the self-directed kind, and it's working on a molecular level even when the Hollywood narrative trappings of the film let it down. The film is drastically different from Vandermeer's book, but it's also about something that can't be uttered, and accordingly, Garland goes silent for the film's stunning finale, something at the intersection of the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey and Modern Dance. It left me breathless with its unforgiving depiction of the relentless weight of depression, the impulse to self-destruct. The film has one eye on the final girl structure of horror films throughout its expedition, and the ending takes that phrase, turns it inside out, and shatters it into a thousand refracted points of light. Like all things this cosmic, it will certainly be snickered about as trippy shit, but I suspect a sizable portion of the audience will see themselves there. End quote. Manola Dargis, 22nd February, 2018, New York Times. Quote, A science fiction fantasy spiked with Baroque horror, Annihilation tells an enigmatic tale of love and death and alien invasion. The setup turns on one of those alien mysteries, an extraterrestrial or a monolith or floating spaceships that have come to Earth to wreak havoc or hatch conspiracies and force humans to make bad choices. The foreign body here takes the form of what's called the Shimmer, a glistening, ever-growing force field that has descended on a swath of Florida marshland. Interrupting the quotation to point out, despite promotional materials, despite the novel, the movie never says it's set in Florida, and really shouldn't be. But back to the quote. Backtracking. The foreign body here takes the form of what's called the Shimmer, a glistening, ever-growing force field that has descended on a swath of Florida marshland like an opalescent shower curtain. The Shimmer's whirling pinky purples and blues evoke the rainbow colors you see in oily patches on a road after it rains, which suggests there's something toxic about its beauty. Annihilation is based on the first book in Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, but it also seems to owe a considered debt to the ancient myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. In Virgil's telling, Orpheus journeys to the underworld in an attempt to retrieve his adored wife Eurydice, who has died from a snake bite. Ovid revisited the myth in Metamorphoses, and centuries later, Jean Cocteau put a modern spin on it in Orpheus, 1950, a hypnotically lovely film in which Death's emissary is a striking woman who rides around in a black Rolls Royce flanked by motorcyclists. A legend is entitled to be beyond time and place, the narrator in Cocteau's film says. Interpret it as you wish. In Annihilation, it's Lena who assumes the role of Orpheus, descending into a transfigured world filled with terrors, death, eccentric beauty, and room for interpretive leeway. End quote. Ovid, The Metamorphoses Quote Hymen, called by the voice of Orpheus, departed and dressed in his saffron robes, made his way through the vast skies to the Siconian coast, but in vain. He was present at Orpheus's marriage, true, but he did not speak the usual words, display a joyful expression, or bring good luck. 
torch, too, that he held sputtered continually with tear-provoking fumes, and no amount of shaking contrived to light it properly. The result was worse than any omens. While the newly wedded bride Eurydice was walking through the grass with a crowd of naiads as her companions, she was killed by a bite on her ankle from a snake sheltering there. When Thracian Orpheus, the poet of Rhodope, had mourned for her greatly in the upper world, he dared to go down to Styx, through the gate of Taenarus, also to see if he might not move the dead. Through the weightless throng and the ghosts that had received proper burial, he came to Persephone, and the Lord of the Shadows, he who rules the joyless kingdom. Then striking the lyre strings to accompany his words, he sang, O gods of this world, placed below the earth, to which all who are created mortal descend, if you allow me, and it is lawful, to set aside the fictions of idle tongues and speak the truth, I have not come here to see dark Tartarus, nor to bind Cerberus, Medusa's child with his three necks and snaky hair. My wife is the cause of my journey. A viper she trod on diffused its venom into her body and robbed her of her best years. I longed to be able to accept it, and I do not say I have not tried. Love won. He is a god well known in the world above, though I do not know if that is so here. Though I imagine him to be here as well, and if the story of that rape in ancient times is not a lie, you also were wedded by Amor. I beg you by these fearful places, by this immense abyss, and the silence of your vast realms, reverse Eurydice's swift death. All things are destined to be yours, and though we delay a while sooner or later, we hasten home. Here we are all bound, this is our final abode, and you hold the longest reign over the human race. Eurydice, too, will be yours to command when she has lived out her fair span of years to maturity. I ask this benefit as a gift, but if the fates refuse my wife this kindness, I am determined not to return. You can delight in both our deaths. The bloodless spirits wept as he spoke, accompanying his words with the music. Tantalus did not reach for the ever-retreating water. Ixion's wheel was stilled. The vultures did not pluck at Tychus's liver. The Belides, the daughters of Danaus, left their water jars, and you, Sisyphus, perched there on your rock. Then they say for the first time, the faces of the Furies were wet with tears, won over by his song. The king of the deep and his royal bride could not bear to refuse his prayer, and called for Eurydice. She was among the recent ghosts, and walked haltingly from her wound. The poet of Rhodope received her, and at the same time accepted this condition, that he must not turn his eyes behind him until he emerged from the Vale of Avernus, where the gift would be null and void. They took the upward path, through the still silence steep and dark, shadowy with dense fog drawing near to the threshold of the upper world. Afraid she was no longer there, and eager to see her, the lover turned his eyes. In an instant she dropped back, and he, unhappy man, stretching out his arms to hold her, and beheld clutched at nothing but the receding air. Dying a second time now, there was no complaint to her husband. What then could she complain of except that she had been loved? She spoke a last farewell that now scarcely reached his ears, and turned again towards that same place. Stunned by the double loss of his wife, Orpheus was like that coward who saw Cerberus, the three-headed dog, chained by the central neck, and whose fear vanished with his nature as stone transformed his body. Or like Alenos, and you, his Lethea, too proud of your beauty. He wished to be charged with your crime and seem guilty himself. Once wedded hearts, you are now rocks, set on moist Mount Ida. Orpheus wished and prayed in vain to cross the sticks again, but the ferryman fended him off. Still, for seven days he sat there by the shore, neglecting himself and not taking nourishment. 
Sorrow, troubled thought, and tears were his food. He took himself to lofty Mount Rhodope, and Hamas swept for the winds, complaining that the gods of Erebus were cruel. End quote. Juliana Pod, Encyclopedia Mythica. Quote, Eurydice and Orpheus were young and in love. So deep was their love that they were practically inseparable. So dependent was their love that each felt they could not live without the other. These young lovers were very happy and spent their time frolicking through the meadows. One day Eurydice was gaily running through a meadow with Orpheus when she was bitten by a serpent. The poison of the sting killed her and she descended to Hades immediately. Orpheus was son of the great Olympian god Apollo. In many ways Apollo was the god of music and Orpheus was blessed with musical talents. Orpheus was so sad about the loss of his love that he composed music to express the terrible emptiness which pervaded his every breath and movement. He was so desperate and found so little else meaningful that he decided to address Hades. As the overseer of the underworld, Hades' heart had to be hard as steel, and so it was. Many approached Hades to beg for loved ones back, and as many times were refused. But Orpheus's music was so sweet and so moving that it softened the steel-hearted heart of Hades himself. Hades gave permission to Orpheus to bring Eurydice back to the surface of the earth to enjoy the light of day. There was only one condition. Orpheus was not to look back as he ascended. He was to trust that Eurydice was immediately behind him. It was a long way back up, and just as Orpheus had almost finished that last part of the trek, he looked behind him to make sure Eurydice was still with him. At that very moment, she was snatched back because he did not trust that she was there. When you hear music which mourns lost love, it is Orpheus's spirit who guides the hand of the musicians who play it. End quote.
twilight, the watchtower at Fort Amaya, mostly in silhouette, framed with a grass-covered bunker to either side. Then, another angle, from what was just the right, angled upward at the tower, three women nearing the top of the stairs, Lena, or maybe Shepard, in the lead, then Raddick, the third one possibly Thornton, but visible only between the slats of the steps and mostly unidentifiable. Second six, a lone bird launches itself from the roof just above the door. Lena, or Shepard, stops and watches it fly away. Second eleven cut to black. The black moves to the right and we realize we are behind someone. The script mistakenly says, Exterior, house slash bedroom, night. The bedroom is, of course, inside the house. The moving silhouette reveals Lena's face, asleep, on her right side, her left arm across her body, both arms under her pillow. The script says, in darkness, then light flooding onto her closed eyes, stirring her. But it is morning, sunlight on Lena's side and shoulder from the right. The silhouette leaves the frame to the right to reveal, in the foreground, a glass of orange juice is laid down onto a bedside table. Lena blinks herself awake. In the script, to see her bedroom and Kane drawing the curtains, then turning to her. Kane, freshly squeezed. Lena. Oh, oh that's, that's nice of you. you. She rolls onto her back. Second 22. Cut to, same angle but farther back to reveal Kane. The continuity on her rolling over fairly smooth. In the script, Kane says, I'm full of surprises. He sits on the bed next to her. Lena, bringing her hand down on his side of the bed. Why aren't you here? Beat. She turns her head to look up instead of toward Kane. She starts to slide her right arm out from under the pillow, bracing for his response. Kane, I gotta leave a day early. She turns her head to look at him again. Lena, whispering. What? She starts to push herself up. Wait, today? She settles on one elbow. Kane, nodding. Right now. Lena, oh shit. Lena props herself up. Lena continued. But we had a whole day planned. She touches his arm lightly. We were going to drive to the country. Kane cuts in. I can't. Lena reaches out with her hand. Takes his. Lena, can you at least? She drops back down, taking his hand with her, but he remains sitting. His arm stretched. The script simply says he pulls his hand back. But he takes his hand out of hers. But gently. Then rests it on top of both of hers, pushing her hands down also gently, and he lightly brushes her fingers with his thumb. Lena, continued, now means right now. Smash got to close on Kane, second 52. His eyes are closed. He opens them and looks toward Lena, off screen, down, and to the left. He nods. Kane, yeah. Eglon Lena passed Kane, shocked, perhaps, confused, definitely upset. A beat. And time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Is all we are. I 
annihilation.